Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So before we get started, we've actually got a special offer for Reconsider listeners. Now, as you guys know, uh, Xander and I love the great works of philosophy, political theory, and literature throughout the ages. We both think that it's been foundational in our understanding of politics throughout history and today. So our special offer today is for those who are interested in developing a habit of reading classic books by authors such as Homer, Nietzsche, Cicero, Spinoza, and more. To do that, you can go to OnlineGreatBooks.com. OnlineGreatBooks.com is designed to help you develop a regular habit of reading the great books. Weekly reading goals, reading reminders, accountability tools, and a dedicated community of fellow readers help you keep on track and on schedule with your reading. The OnlineGreatBooks.com check-in and reading goal system is designed to help you progress through the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. And every month, OnlineGreatBooks.com ships a carefully selected edition of one of the great books directly to your home. They begin with Homer and progress through works like Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Shakespeare, and up through the moderns. Each month, you'll meet in a two-hour video conference to discuss your text with a small community of readers in a Socratic seminar led by a trained Socratic host. So go to OnlineGreatBooks.com to join the VIP list and you'll receive for free an executive book summary, a digest of the reading list, and more. If you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the great books, go to onlinegreatbooks.com and do please enter the promo code REC to get 25% off your first three months. Again, that promo code is REC. Hey. All right, cool. All right. I don't know what the, that is. The restart reload worked like it does every time. I don't even know why anyone has an IT company. How you to restart it? Just just restart, close it out, shake it a little bit if it's not shake working. Blow on it. Old Nintendo, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Now we've just revealed exactly. We've revealed the precise, precise fact that all of us were born in the 1980s. <laughs> oh man, I have, I have you beat you actually. I have you beat a little bit. Oh, okay, you're a Gen Xer, but uh, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, um, yeah, still Pong, I think, but yeah, you got to take the cartridge out, right, and then you got to shake it, and then you got to blow it, put it right back in. Let's just do that with the yeah, economy. Well. <laughs> just take it out. Wow, yeah, totally just blow on it a little. Blow bit. on it. 
shake it. Yeah, that's something that has to be explained very carefully to our younger <laughs> listeners. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, just blow it and it'll be fine. They're like, oh? Yeah. Mark, I had to, I had, I had, at one point I told a, a group of uh, students uh, that this, I was showing them a complicated graph. I was like, it's kind of like Legend of Zelda where you have to make your decisions to go through. And I got like 40 confused looks. And I was like, oh. What? Legend of Zelda, man. It's not like Contra. Contra. It's not like Contra. <laughs> <laughs> Games used to be hard, and that's how they should well, be. Until you do, until so I'm going to weave this in. So until you learn the, until you learn the code, right? right? Oh, well, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, hey. it's up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. B A select start, and then you've got yes. unlimited lives. It's the Indeed. only way I could beat Contra. With hacks. With, with hacks. With hacks. That's how I, hacking, that's what we used to call that. That's what hacking used to be. Yeah, back in the day, man. Back it the wasn't day, the man. Russians trying to. Trying <laughs> no, it, to was. It, was all, it was all Russians. It was all Russians, right? Like, oh. was it Rocky? Rocky IV was the Russians. I don't know what year they came oh, out. Yeah. Right. Man, yeah. we are old. <laughs> but it's all, now it's all cycling back. It's all just, just cycles. That's all it is. <laughs> Welcome, dear listeners, to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Uh, we are continuing our series on economics today, bringing in another expert, John Schraubisch, who we'll introduce in a moment. Quick housekeeping. Uh, Agora did just launch our podcast listener forum on Facebook, so you can go search for the Agora Podcast Listener Forum. Um, and a number of our hosts, including us, will go up there and we'll post articles we think are interesting. We'll start discussions. A lot of listeners are there talking to each other. It's actually a really great time. Come check it out. Agora Podcast Listener Forum. And now to the show. So I'd like to introduce Jonathan Schwabish. Uh, John is a policy data visualization nerd, which means he's, of course, very dear to our hearts. Uh, his website, policyviz.com, is about how to visualize policy data really well and why that's important. And I happen to think it's very important. Um, he's an economist by training, and his big thing is communicating policy and economics more clearly to real people because we live in a democracy. He spent nine years at the Congressional Budget Office and is currently a senior fellow at the Urban Institute's Income and Benefits Policy Center and Communication Team. Uh, he has a book called Better Presentation, a guide for scholars, researchers, and wonks that I wish I had read when I was working on my master's thesis, and he got his PhD from Syracuse. Uh, we will link to all of his really cool stuff that you should go read in the show notes. And if the words Urban Institute sound familiar, that's because we also just recently had Dr. Marin from the same place. Yes. And today, per his specialty, John Trobis is going to help us get a better understanding of the tax bill that was just passed in, in late 2017. And obviously, it's a very complicated bill. It has come up sort of in passing or tangentially in this economic series that we've been doing, but it has generally just been either poorly communicated or not communicated in a comprehensive way, therefore misinterpreted, misunderstood, or just hard to hit all the bullets. So we're going to try to give that tax bill a somewhat more rounded perspective. So John, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. The recent tax bill passed by the GOP was marketed as something that would supercharge growth, help the middle class, and boost worker pay. Uh, Trump commonly called it the biggest tax cut in a generation. 
it was sold actually both as a tax cut and as tax reform more generally, the latter implying that the important part is less about the money in your pocket and more about a change in the incentives that the uh, tax system has. And by doing this, the bill is meant to create incentives for people to be more economically productive here in the United States. That was the idea. It's also been blasted as a giveaway to the rich, a giveaway to corporations, apparently also GOP donors. It's been blasted as a budget buster and just bad news generally. It was also a bill that was hacked together pretty fast. uh, So we often didn't really know it was in it at each iteration as it changed. So the public was not very well informed and it was unpopular when it passed. So polling, it didn't do all that well. So that's largely what most people know. And John's going to help us out a little bit. So my, John, my first question for you is, you know, one thing I think that was really interesting about the conversation was for, you know, for those who both supported it and didn't like it, they mostly talked about the personal income tax cuts and not the corporate tax cuts. And, you know, I want to get your thoughts on why that might have been or what the consequences are. Um, But I do generally like, you know, when talking about the tax bill with people, I like breaking into two parts, income and corporate, because I think they're really different beasts. And I'm wondering if you agree with that. Uh, And if you don't, why not? And is there any other big category of what was in the tax bill other than those two things, income and corporate? I mean, I I think that's the right way to think about it in those two grand buckets. There's a lot of other things going on. There was some uh, treatment from uh, the Affordable Care Act that was in there. There was some issue, some some treatment of what happens with sole proprietorships and small businesses, treating them as pass-throughs where um, you basically, you know, person like me who are, you know, a sole proprietor may be getting 1099s and you treat yourself more as a corporation. So there's those sorts of things that sort of balance or blend between the two. But I think thinking about it in these two buckets is probably the right way to do it because there were really big changes in both of those sides. On the corporate side, of course, the big thing that happened was cutting the corporate tax rate down to 21% from 35%, which is a just a tremendous change. And something that I think, you know, probably people on both sides of the aisle think is in general cutting the corporate tax rate, I think in general, probably most people would would agree with. Um, The question, of course, whenever you pass tax reform or pass tax cuts is how do you make up the lost revenue? And in the case of this bill, um, that was not really part of the story, not really part of the concern, um, because not only does the bill or does the law now uh, cut the corporate tax rate, it also changed uh, the income tax rate on the personal side um, and reduced a lot of those rates as well. And I think probably for, for, for I, I think what happens is you have like the, the two camps of the income tax and the corporate tax. And I think that probably ends up filtering down into how things are communicated uh, to the public. Um, I, I would guess that if, you know, you're a big watcher of, you know, CNBC or, or, um, you know, uh, headline news or something, or, or where the stock tickers on there all the time, you're probably more interested in the corporate tax rate, um, or if you're a business owner. Right. But if you're, you know, and any, and like, like us, right. And you're worried about what you are going to have to pay at the end of the year, what you're gonna have to pay in your tax, you know, it, what's going to get taken out of your paycheck every month. Um, and, and that's sort of a different thing. That's the personal part. That's why taxes, I think also healthcare, um, become such hot topics because they are so personal to each of us because every two weeks, you know, we see how much money is coming out of our, out of our pocket. So I think the, 
the question about the corporate tax is something worth diving into a little bit more because it was such a big mm-hmm. cut. And the question that always comes to my mind when I think about corporate tax rates are statutory versus effective, right? Because everyone talks about 35% being the statutory rate in the US, which is in a nutshell, just like the rate that you know legally needs to be charged. But of course, there are deductions you can take, non-cash expenses that you can deduct from your operating income that effectively makes the total amount of taxes that you would pay in dollars as a percent of your operating income less. So given that, how, how big of a deal is this reduction in the statutory rate to 21% given that you know, the, the effective average rate in the U.S. was already, you know, lower than 35%. And, you know, what changes from here? It was a good question. I think, I think it's, a, it's a big change um, in practice for lots of businesses who um, maybe were not able to take advantage of some of the, uh, you know, some of the offshoring where they move, they move parts of the business overseas um, or some of the other accounting mechanisms mechanisms that maybe larger businesses are allowed to take uh, take advantage of. So, I would suspect for a lot of businesses, it's a it's an actually uh, major change. Um, I think the other part about it is how we're supposed to think about the long term effects of the change in the corporate tax rate. I mean, it's a, it, it is a massive change, and the optics of it, of course, are the other part of how the tax bill was sold. That you know. I think probably business owners have a better sense of what they have to pay on their taxes. You know, probably a lot of people um, with their personal income taxes, they sort of have a general sense. But, you know, I, I, you know, I know a lot of people who are like, it's sort of a guessing game at the end of the year. You know, am I going to get a refund? Am I going to have to pay? Like, what is it at the end? I think probably corporations and business owners probably have, a you know, their fingers are a little bit more on the pulse because it, you know, obviously matters to the health of their business, especially if they're a public company and they have to, you know, respond to shareholder demands. But the optics of it that are saying, oh, look at all this money I can now save in taxes. You know, maybe I can roll this into more investment into my business. Maybe I can roll it into, you know, um, pass, passing some of those savings on to employees. Um, for better or for worse, I think there's an optics issue there. The other thing that, that I think is worth talking about with the corporate tax rate is just on the optics of how the tax bill was passed. You know, one of the things that we all heard during the relatively short debate on the on the bill was how this was going to add, you know, there was going to be a lot of negative effects. You know, as, a, as, as you mentioned earlier, it's a, you know, tax cuts for the for the rich. Um, you know, it's going to blow up the debt. And, you know, you had a lot of different organizations coming out with much lower uh, much bigger debt numbers and much lower growth numbers that are coming out of the out of the bill than um, the proponents out of the administration out of the out of out of Congress. But I think one of the one of the ways or one of the responses I would have as someone who was trying to sell the bill or the law um, that I really didn't hear a lot was to say, look, all of the projections on your GDP growth or your economic growth or your debt numbers are all based on historical experience. And we haven't had a, ta- a corporate tax uh, tax cut of this magnitude in forever. So what you're projecting in the future 
Um, you know, how, how do you, how do you, you know, square the circle where you're basing your models on historical data, but we have this massive tax cut that is just out of the realm of what we've experienced in the past. So, you know, I think there's sort of the practical part of what am I going to have to pay as a business owner? Um, but also how was it sold to the public? I think was, was really interesting. Um, and that, that communication side of things, um, is something we can talk about uh, a little bit later, but I, I think the optics of it are, are part of what, you know, obviously, uh, why it why it garnered support on one side and 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 opposition on the other side. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep digging at this because this mm-hmm. this is great. One of the things you said earlier was that you know generally corporate tax cuts are something that sees some support on both sides. And I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, <laughs> and I, I know it's very far to one side, but I know that the you know my definitely my experience has not been that the the left around here has been supportive of corporate tax cuts, and I think. One of the, you know, the the argument I've heard is that, hey, the corporate tax cut is is being sold on, and I'm not sure this is how it was being sold, but pro- opponents of the corporate tax cut are saying, look, the supporters of the corporate tax cut are saying that businesses need more money in their pockets to invest and to give money to employees, but business profits are higher than they've ever been, so if more profits meant, you know, more money for employees and more investment, we would have already seen right. it. And therefore, the entire argument for the corporate tax cut is null. Maybe we should even tax them more because their their profits are so high. Is there some is there a like more sophisticated argument in favor of uh, corporate tax cuts than just, oh, it will give businesses more money and they'll do something with that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's the that's the that's one of the selling points, right? Is that you know corporations make a lot of money, and so therefore they don't need a bigger tax cut. But right. you know, if we look at the data, the thirty five percent corporate tax rate is by modern developed major industrialized nation, industrialized nations. It's it's by far the highest. Now, I don't know what the magic number is. You know, I don't know if it's twenty one or twenty eight or thirty two or what. You know, what is right. the right number? Um, I think. Part of the question of what the right number is, is what's the goal of the law, you know, and, and what are the outcomes of the law? Do you are you worried about balancing the budget? Are you worried about doing things through the in, the personal income tax side? Are you worried about doing things with low income support programs like the earned income tax credit? You know, those sorts of things. But I think the, the other thing to keep in mind is that we are um, in a global economy and we don't American businesses don't just compete with other American businesses or Mexican businesses or Canadian businesses or, you know, it's a global economy. And so and we know this, right, the economy's gotten smaller and smaller. It's just that that competition has gotten, uh, I think, you know, more the world has gotten smaller and smaller. Um, and again, I don't know what the right what the right number is, but I think I think also, you know, obviously there's lots of different types of businesses. But, you know, the people that I know who are the own businesses, they own, you know, they're like me, it's a one man shop or, you know, they have five or six employees. And I'd be surprised if any of those are saying, oh yeah, we're rolling in cash right now. You know, the bigger corporations, as I think there's a view that they are rolling in money. And I think, you know, there's a recent precedent for that belief, you know, the fiscal, uh, the financial crisis, you know, it's not, you know, we're only what? 10 years out from the financial crisis, you know, I think that exposed a lot of the excesses in the financial sector, but also the, the, 
corporate sector. And I think there's a, there's still, I think people still feel, you know, scarred a little bit by that. And I think rightfully so. Um, and we just saw, you know, this, this past week, you know, rollback of some of the Dodd-Frank uh, legislation that that was put in place after the financial crisis to try to put some checks and balances on the on the financial sector. So, you know, I I think there's on on especially on the left, you know, in the New England states, but also here in Northern Virginia, you know, we're kind of a purple purple turning blue up here. Um, yeah. You know, there is there is certainly reluctance, and it's you know uh, it's not all rooted in fact, which I think is or in data, which is what we are you know what what we're trying to get at here on on. on you know, on this podcast. Um, and I think just looking at the data, that 35% was just, you know, historically high, well, maybe not historically high, but certainly high relative to our, our partners, yeah, globally, high. globally yeah. high. Yeah. Um, and again, what's the right number? You know, I, you know, I, I don't know, but it seems like the right number is the number that meets whatever the goal is. Um, in this case, it seemed like, you know, remember it was, it was down to 20%. In the early version, I think in the House version of the bill, it was down to twenty percent, and then it creeped back up to twenty one percent because they wanted to hit some target of what the debt, you know, the the increase in the debt was going to be. They wanted to be just a little bit less. So, you know, how all these things come together, and how you know the legislature, the Congress has to follow certain rules, and and what they want the score to look like, what they want the final numbers to look like, all impacts that that number. Um, and again, we'll have to see what happens. Um, you know, the other thing we should talk about is is the economy, right? The economy right now is buzzing and it's humming along. And we now have this big tax cut in the middle of a, you know, of a economic, uh, you know, low unemployment rate and, and decent economic growth. Um, I mean, you basically preempted my next question. But <laughs> before I get to it, I, I do just want to take the opportunity on reconsider. It is the one of the first times it's come up for me to tell everyone what to think and what the right answer is, because clearly the right number is 42. Yeah, <laughs> that, is right. that, is, that is true. That is the right number. But, however, what is the question? I see what you did. See what I did. Here's the I'll question. Right back to you. we'll speak in a thousand years (laughs) so i don't have the question but i have a question hopefully that'll suffice i was okay i'm gonna build a (laughs) computer to go figure it out i mean so you talked about the um position within the current economic cycle in which we find ourselves and this is a point that i've now heard made by several talking heads or pundits or radio interviewees, so on and so forth, that tax cuts are fine. And I've actually even heard left-leaning economists say that tax cuts can be fine as a fiscal stimulus policy. The thing is, it's nice to do fiscal stimulus when the economy needs it. Mm -hmm. And we're not in a recession. The labor market's very tight. Inflation is, you know, not not nothing it's it's i think lower than the fed would like but it's right we're not near zero percent and interest rates are still low even though they're going up so is is this the appropriate time for fiscal stimulus is there salt to this argument um what do you think yeah i I mean i i think there is look there's i mean look it, it, it obviously depends on your philosophy about what government should do and what government should be um if you believe that government should have a a smaller or minimal role in people's lives, then I think you probably want to reduce taxes 
no matter whenever you can, no matter if it's during an economic, you know, economic boom or bust. But I think, you know, from my perspective, what you'd want to do is have an opportunity to cut taxes in a time where you want to encourage spending, where you want to sort of jumpstart the economy. And that's what we saw during the financial crisis, right? When when President Obama came into the office, came into office, he offered some of these short term uh, stimulus packages that had some of the pieces went some of it was direct spending, uh, but but other parts of it were um, ta- uh, uh, small tux- uh, cuts in taxes. Some of it were small increases in benefits. For example, at the in the food stamp program, uh, benef- uh, beneficiaries got a small bump in their in their uh, benefits for for a couple of years. Um, and that's that's you know when you have a recession, that's one way that the federal government can respond to try to kickstart the economy. When the economy is doing well, um, you know when you cut taxes, then it's hard to you know you're not really spurring anything. Um, in, in that necessarily that way, um, and you in some ways you tie your hands for what's going to happen. What happens down the road if we if we turn into a recession a year from now, uh, if we have another financial crisis, say, you know, it's not clear to me that we can continue to cut taxes um, because you put yourself in a very dangerous position when it comes to the deficit and the debt. Now, let me just uh, come back one second to the economy doing well. I think. And I've been sort of thinking about this in a in a different way lately. You know, one of the one of the things that everybody argued about with the tax cut bill or the tax bill was, you know, what is econ- economic growth is great. Economic growth, it's going to be X percent or Y percent or Z percent. And everybody argued about that, and it seems to me that 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 term economic growth may not be the right term because economic growth may not be shared equally across the entire economy, right? So. You know, maybe in Northern Virginia and in you know different pockets and cities and industries around the country, the the economy feels like it's doing great. But maybe in other industries or in, in various areas of the country, still doesn't feel that way, right? There still is a four point something percent unemployment rate, and that doesn't include the people who have stopped looking for work. So the the sort of unemployment rate, the the broader unemployment rate, is much higher than that. So. You know, there is this thought of, you know, let's make let's let's grow the economy. But um, maybe the 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 economic growth that we are seeing and we have seen for the last 20 or so years, it doesn't you know, the old saying of a rising tide lifts all boats. Maybe that's not occurring. Um, And so, yeah, it's easy to say that the economy is growing. And I just said it. Um, The economy is doing well. And that's true on aggregate. But it's not necessarily necessarily true at some of the more micro levels when you look at region or you look at different groups of, of demographic uh, characteristics of people or by different industries or occupations. I think that's a great point. Um, just to you know, point out the heterogeneity of the country, it's not a single entity. There are people in industries right. that have gotten hurt more for a number of reasons over the course of the last decade. And that is manifested in you know the shift in policy positions of certain political parties. But on the jobs market, just something that came up recently that kind of surprised me because you mentioned the broader measurement of unemployment. I think that's something that's you know important to point out because even uh, the four point whatever percent excludes not only people who have stopped looking who aren't even in the late labor force, but a number of other different unemployment metrics that get captured by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But anyways, labor force went up in the most recent jobs report and has been trending up, right? Mm-hmm. So people are actually re-entering the labor force, which, and I've heard the argument there is, that will put downward pressure on on wages. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, so so the basic story here is you have let's just let's just keep it simple, right? So you have um, people who are 60, 65 and older who you know they they work a whole career and then they retire, and maybe now some of those are, are re-entering the workforce because the wages have been going up, and they may be coming into you know maybe more part-time jobs you know, maybe not necessarily professional jobs, they're coming in. And so what that does, because they have more experience, so employers are more likely to hire those people who have a long employment history. And so those people may come in and and take jobs that might have sort of traditionally been filled by, let's just say, teenagers in this simple example, right? So you have these pressures, uh, you know, that 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 are playing off of each other, one group, you know, sort of pitted in some ways against another group. And so you have these interesting patterns going on, not to mention, we just have just a general aging of the workforce. Um, We have still the the impacts or the the long-term impacts from the financial crisis of people who lost their entire life savings now have to work longer or or continue to work um, or or have to re-enter the the labor market to to make up for those lost savings. So so the the long-term uh, impacts of the tax bill will be really interesting to see whether encourage it encourages people to enter the labor force, which gives them more experience, which ultimately raises, you know, inc- uh, pushes their wages up. But, you know, I think that's sort of, you know, the second or third pass down the stream, as it were, to uh, to to measure the impacts of the tax bill. <clears throat> so one of the one of the themes I'm getting from this is that uh, and, and this is the precursor question that probably has a short answer to my next one. But one of the themes I'm, I'm getting from you is that your impression is that it's actually very hard even now to predict what is the impact going to be of this tax bill. Is that right? I mean, I spent a long time at CBO um, trying to forecast finances of the social security system. It's incredibly, I mean, as you would expect, it's incredibly hard to do, right? right. And what you do uh, when you do any of these sorts of models, when you do any of these sorts of projections, you base your projections on historical evidence and historical data and your best understanding of the relationship between parts of the economy. And the American economy is a huge economy and it's part of an even larger global economy. So these things are very hard to do. Now, you know, so when someone says growth, the you know, growth rate's going to be 1.2% next year or whatever the number is, I sort of already in my head and building some sort of confidence bound around that, right? Like it's right. not, right? It's going to be something around that. And um, it's not that I don't trust the numbers. It's, you know, when, when the Joint Committee on Taxation or CBO, or the Tax Policy Center, or any of these groups who have a good reputation, who have experts, when they come out with the numbers, you know, that's really a best guess. And I don't think there's anything wrong with believing that number, as long as we understand um, that it is a best guess, right? It is a it is a forecast based on our historical experience. So one of the things that some of the better models are able to do is to vary some of those assumptions. So as an example, at, at CBO, um, the way the CBO long-term model works is there's one, and I'm speaking from my experience when I was there, so I'm, I'm no longer there. So from my experience when I was there, you know, there's one, there's, there's one way in which you can run the model that'll give you sort of the answer, right? Um, there's another way to run the model where instead of assuming a growth rate of whatever, 1.2%, you say, okay, every year, Let's um, let's pull from a distribution. Let's pull from that confidence interval. So maybe it's one point two percent plus or minus point, you know, 
0.4 percentage points. And so in some, in one of those runs, you get a number of 1.2 and another run, it's 0.08 and another one, it's 1.3. And you run that 500 or a thousand times and you sort of average all of the results together. And so now you're able to build, you know, a more, a richer, uh, richer approach to the modeling, which is trying to bring in or, or incorporate some of this uncertainty that, that we know exists. And we know the uncertainty exists uh, within the data itself. We know the uncertainty exists in our understanding of how the world works, in our and in, in uncertainty in in our understanding of how our how the actual model works and our understanding of what's going to happen in the future. Because, you know, you know, the financial another financial crisis could hit tomorrow, right? We just we just don't know. So yeah. it's not that I don't believe them. I just you know I just want to. Um, you know, take them all together and view them as a whole, just like when uh, during any of the presidential elections and you see, I mean, I think this was Nate Silver's um, uh, innovation back when he was doing 538 when he was at the New York Times. I mean, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his innovation was to average all the polls together, which in retrospect is like, well, duh. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, it's like, so it seems so obvious now but, you know, when you take an average and, you know, you have 10 polls and they all range between, you know, whatever, 44 and 48%, and then you have some other poll that's 34%, you start to think about, okay, so what's what's going on with that poll? Maybe that poll is right, but if all these other ones are in this other range, this one seems to be the outlier. So um, it's not that I don't believe the projections. I just want to make sure that I'm, um, I'm careful with them. And I'm th- and I just try to think carefully about what these different groups are saying, both on, on both sides of the aisle. Right. And the congressional budget office, the CBO, they have a model and Congress like has some rules that they actually have to work with that. But then we've got all these private models, the, uh, JCT, which is the joint committee on taxation, um, as well as the tax foundation, which is an, uh, think tank, um, and, you know, obviously it, yeah, anyone can say anything they want, right? Like, like some news organization or, or Donald Trump or Paul Ryan or Nancy Pelosi can come out and be like, well, this is what it's going to do. And, you know, for our, for our listeners that want to do a little bit more of their own research, I mean, mm. one thing I can say is that one of the things, if you look at tax foundation, they'll say, yes, our our prediction is different. Here are some different assumptions we used, and and you can get into this awesome rabbit hole that can right. you know take you that can take up the whole weekend. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> is there? But for our, our listeners that want to do a little bit more research on what are the likely economic impacts and and what are the you know assumptions behind different models and what are the methodologies behind them? Mm-hmm. Um, where would you? send them to start? Would it just be, hey, go to CBO and, and JCT and Tax Foundation? Or is there are there things that you um, have found to be, or places that you found to be more reliable, less reliable as yeah. as places to look? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Like, where's the, the right resource? So, so first thing, so uh, JCT is a Joint Committee on Taxation. So they are a, a congressional agency. Uh, so not a private group, they're a congressional agency and they work, they often work closely with, with CBO. Um, so Tax Foundation is another group, um, Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, which mm. is the, the abbreviation is CBPP. Um, there's also, uh, now I'm blanking on the name, um, it's similar to that. There's also at Urban, where I'm at, where I am, is the Tax Policy Center, which is a joint project from between Urban and the Brookings Institution. Oh. Um, 
And, you know, so I'm, so I'll talk about TPC cause I'm a little biased and I know the people who work there and I read their stuff basically daily because, you know, they sit down the hall for me. Um, What's TPC? What JCT, tax, tax policy. Tax policy center. center. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what TPC does and these other groups do it too, but again, I'll just talk to TPC cause I I'm familiar with what they're doing. Um, what TPC does is not only do they write, you know, blog posts and sort of short summaries of, the score. So I'm, I'm actually looking at their, their macroeconomic analysis right now, which is like, you know, four pages long, but they also have deeper dives where they actually talk about the model, where they actually talk about, you know, how do they build it? You know, what are the assumptions that they build into it? Um, when I was at CBO, we published a lot of papers um, that actually talked about the guts of the model. And actually, I remember one of my first papers uh, at CBO was, oh man, it must've been like a 150 page paper and talking that's about how the, for you guys. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, like 80 pages of it was just tables. It was yeah, just yeah, yeah. it was like one of those papers that you know no one's gonna read unless you know you you have nothing to do like ever. <laughs> or you listen to reconsider. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, man, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Even even I don't read all the tables to some extent. <laughs> yeah, and well then that's part of the problem. That that yeah. you know, to some extent, like people can only do so much research. There has to be a level of trust established with you know, there's like reputation has to be part Absolutely. of it because to some extent I can't I can't validate like even I well, even I, but like this is what I do and like I can't validate everyone's methodology as 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 good, right? No, that's absolutely right. And so what we have to do is we have to rely on others to help validate that. So, you know, the Tax Policy Center and the Tax Foundation and JCT are the, you know, are most often quoted because they have a, a track record of doing high quality work. Mm. Um, you know, I'm sure there are other places that have tried this and have sort of flamed out because their work is not reliable or the people who are working there can't explain it. I think that's another big part of it, you know, is being able to explain uh, the model. How does the model work? Are, you know, is the, is the, you know, the head of foundation, you know, the foundation of taxes, you know, is, he, is that person able to explain how the model works? And I think that communication part is really important. And I don't think we can really be expected to weed through, you know, we being, you know, you know, citizen Joe Schmo uh, can be expected to wade through the ins and outs of all these complex analyses. It's just not, it's just not, you know, so for me, right. So, so like for the, for the three of us, we're wading through economic analyses pretty regularly and it's pretty familiar to us, right? No problem. But to take, but to take it like away from our area of expertise, like I don't go sit around reading all the literature on climate change, right? I just, I, I rely on, I rely on the major newspapers and major medias, uh, uh, organizations to provide me with those, with those, with those stories. Um, and you know, that's probably not the best way to go about understanding, but like, I, I'm not going to go try to read hundreds of studies on climate change, nor am I going to understand a lot of the the jargon in there. Um, so what do we do? I think part of it is, as I tell a lot of my students when I teach statistics is to have your antenna up all the time. When you see a number that doesn't make sense or it's so far afield from what you might expect or what from a lot of other places are saying, that's something to consider. If it's, you know, th there's the a sort of another thing I tell my students is like when you see an outlier in your data, that is both 
um, exciting for two reasons. It's either because you found, you stumbled on something that's really exciting and cool and new and, 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 you know, outside the bounds of what we might expect, but it could also be an error and right. you could be attuned to both of those possibilities and to dive into those things. So I think what we as consumers of news and information and data need to be is just, we just need to be discerning. And of course, obviously now, especially in this time of, you know, fake news and oh, man, I just hate using that word. That term, Post truth but, uh, society. Uh, yes. ah. uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just painful to have to say it, but you know, there's just so much misinformation being thrown, thrown about that. It's, it's, I think it's more important than ever for us to um, be at least more discerning and more alert to things that just don't feel right. Um, and then the question is, where do you go? I think that's the big, I think that's a big frustration. A lot of people have is, okay, I see this thing doesn't quite make sense to me, but where do I go now? So back to your original question. Um, if you're the kind of person who says, okay, so group X said that uh, the growth from this tax law is going to be, you know, 4% and that just doesn't seem right. You know, try another group you know, see what the tax policy center says or what the tax foundation says and see what information that they provide because they both, uh, also JCT, they provide a lot of information that explains and explores how they do their estimates and how their estimates differ from a lot of other groups. And I'll just plug you real quick. If you even just want to, you know, not even not even look at the predictions, which is a whole, its own kettle of fish, but if you want a uh, if you as a listener want a really good breakdown of precisely what the personal tax income, um, uh, sorry, the personal tax, yeah, personal income tax consequences are going to be through 2027 and beyond, uh, I've got a link to John's uh, blog post on that. I thought it was really good. Uh, it's, you know, data, data policy visualization in action and, and you'll learn a lot from it. So go to the link reconsidermedia.com slash podcast. Find this show. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Yeah, John, I think your point about media organizations and researcher, researchers having some degree of responsibility in learning how to communicate effectively is really important. And I would, again, to folks, go check out policyviz.com, V-I-Z, policyviz. I was reading through your blog post about, there was some chart from, I think it was Merrill Lynch, and it was a stacked bar chart. Mm. I think something that a lot of folks encounter when they do try to actually dig their teeth in and get into the nitty gritty in the weeds is they come across a chart that just like is, it kind of assaults them with information. (laughs) And if you haven't, if you haven't if you haven't you know broken down statistics since college or high school it can be intimidating and the thing that that really stuck out clearly for me in this blog post was how representing this data differently visualizing it in a different way really brings out the trends that you know the author is presumably or was presumably trying to highlight but just gets missed in all of the different colors and all of the different numbers so that was cool. Is what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, I, I that's think, my question. That was cool. <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> well, I, I'll, 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 I'll agree. Your, your, the answer to that question is it was cool. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, um, you know, I think, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about this, and 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 one of the things that that happens, especially with researchers, which is most of the people that I uh, work with, both at Urban and and at other places, is. There is, well, a few things, but but let me just sort of focus on the process, right? I think what a lot of researchers do is they get some data, they do some analysis, they run a regression, they make a graph, and then they, they take those tables and those figures and they put them in a Word document and then they just write, right? And they just write around those pictures. And what really needs to happen more, I think, is the the data analysis part and the writing part and the visualization part all need to be more um, combined into a single process that they all work together. Um, Deidre McCloskey, who's um, an economist at University of Illinois Chicago, has this great book uh, called Economical Writing. So anyone listening to this is, you know, sort of a researcher doing this kind of work. This is like the strunk and white for economists is economical writing. <laughs> and uh, uh, in the book, she talks about how the the data analysis and the writing should not be sequential. You shouldn't do the analysis and then go write. They should be together, going back and forth. You know, you do a little bit of the of the analysis and you write a little bit, and then you go back and maybe you find something else and you can you you iterate. But she doesn't talk about the visualization part, and she doesn't talk about the presentation part, which is which is a whole other um, area to to dive into. But I believe that all three of these things need to be integrated together. So one thing. So I'll just give like the, the the one tip that I that I think can help a lot of people is what happens with like those Merrill Lynch graphs, right? Is it's some tool and it's you know Excel or whatever, and it's insert column chart, and it's like I know how to make this chart, and it's clear to me as the creator, and I'll just put it out. Um, now we can there's lots of ways to learn how to do that better, but one thing I think researchers can do very easily is to take the titles of their charts, and instead of the title being some non-descriptive passive thing of, you know, figure one, unemployment rate, 1950 <laughs> to 2010, it can be what the point is. Like, what do you want me to get out of this graph? Or like, there's a good yes, one. I saw, yes. right? Like, like instead of saying, like, here's a good one. Um, so imagine a graph, we were talking about the labor force participation rate. So let's talk about that. So imagine a graph of 
the labor force participation rate for men and for women over time the last 60 years. So most people would say figure one, labor force participation rate, men and women, 1950 to 2010, right? But like, what if the title of that, of that uh, figure was something like figure one, the labor force participation rate has fallen for men and risen for women over the last 50 years. And you would see these two lines sort of coming together. And that's the point of the graph. And so I think that's one of like the low hanging fruit things that researchers can do is to just think about their titles as a more active part of the, of the graph. And that it's, this is what I want you to get out of the graph. Here it is. It's right in the words, right at the top. And now you have it and now you can go learn more about it. You can get the actual numbers and see the actual trend and dollar amounts or whatever right in the graph itself. I think that's a great point. Um, and yeah it, yeah, it seems like an easy modification. Mm-hmm. And I do, do want to... Oh, right? oh, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, you, you would think it'd be easy, but uh, alas. Oh, it's a, it's a, well, it, no, it's a problem in... I, I'm just going to make a comment, throw it out there and then let it go. I think it's a problem in like almost every almost every kind of like uh, industrial or academic field that there is a way things are done and everyone is really afraid of not doing it the way things are done. And I, yeah. I, when I was in grad school, I saw this all the time. People would like, they would, they would write an essay for a class and it would be great. And then they'd like get to their academic paper and it's like their brains went, I'm going to make this incomprehensible. <laughs> and I'm going to make English really weird and stupid. It's like, no, just write it. Yeah. You know, let me see how long I can write this and put as many jargony words in yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. It's like, no, I'll just write it so I can read it. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Change is heard. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I do have a question. I want to get to the topic of debt because I know it's something you wanted to chat about. I just have one yeah. more quick remark because uh, the, the comment that you made about encouraging your students to just keep an eye out for any particular outliers, that really struck with me because as we've mentioned here at Reconsider, we don't think that average person can, you know, there's only so much that an average person can do, even an interested average person. Yeah. So we have a set of, I like, we call them reconsider principles for helping approach information perhaps more skeptically, or the the ultimate point is encouraging more effective political dialogue. And there's one called internal skepticism. And that really stuck out to me because what we encourage with internal skepticism is to approach sources that you trust even with a certain degree of skepticism, like obviously, like you said, you need to build a base of trust in terms of um, organizations that you reference. But especially with social media and the way information is presented to us on social media, it's also important to be skeptical, even of the things that you've come to trust because they can change, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, I thought that was a great point. No, I, I think that's right on. And the other thing I'd say is that it is unrealistic for us to think that everyone is going to, you know, read a news article in the New York Times or whatever, and everyone is going to like fact check the numbers in the article, right? That that's not going to happen, right? But if you know one person did it or five people did it, you know, right? It, it's just you don't need a lot, right? If we just if we had say there's an article comes out from you know some magazine and one person fact checked it and said, well, this isn't right, or I don't think this is right. And with with social media, I mean, it's one of the advantages, I think, of social media is if if you are the one person who reads this article and says that doesn't look right and you go and do the research, you know, go to the background information to find that it is not right. And then you put that out and say, hey, New York Times, Washington Post, you know, St. Louis Dispatch, whatever it is, you know, this number doesn't seem right. You know, you have that ability to share that with with the rest of the reading public. So it's unrealistic, I think, for us to expect 
for ourselves or for the public at large to do all this research, but we don't need all of us to do it. We just need some people to do it. Yes, totally agree. <laughs> all right. Uh, All right. Back to taxes. So back let's to talk, taxes. Let's talk debt, baby. So um, oh, man. Tax Foundation says uh, there's not going to be as much debt. Uh, who said there was going to be a truckload here? I had it written down and I've totally lost it. But like an extra trillion in debt at least or something. A lot. Yeah. And so we're at a point right now, obviously, where, where debt is already at a historic high, highest since World War II. Um, you know, as you talked about earlier, like, oh, and we and we have low interest rates and those combined always worry me. But um, one of the things we talked about actually with Dr. Marin, your colleague, mm-hmm. um, a couple of weeks ago is is we brought up the debt thing. And one of the things he had said was like, ah, yes, like the government has a lot of ways of of raising revenue. And, and essentially, I think like – I don't know if, you know, it's it's possible that he's just confident that like, oh, when we need to, we will. Um, and his impression was that, you know, like the the issues of debt or like the biggest issue of debt is that like you get increased interest rates, obviously, for, um, you know, for uh, government, you know, for government debt and, and it becomes right. more and more burdensome. I'm one of the things I'm wondering is that obviously before this tax bill, the GOP, that one of their things was debt, 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 too high, bad. Let's let's cut it. And and debt, debt, this debt. is obviously an aberration from. Yes, this is yeah. obviously an aberration from that. But um, what? Let let's say the government doesn't figure out how to raise revenues and debt does keep going up. Do we have like good historical, global, etc. examples of what happens to a country if debt really starts to get? to some, you know, some very high number. I don't know what it is. Probably not 500% of uh, GDP, but, you know, uh, so, you know something large. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's Greece, right? I mean, Greece is the, Greece is the example. Um, Greece borrowed too much and it spiraled out of control. And, you know, it essentially needed to be bailed out by Germany and the rest of the EU. You know, I hesitate to disagree with Donald because, well, first off, he used to be my boss. So, you know, I have to, you know, when I was at CBO. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I think I'm a believer that the that the huge amount of debt is is a problem, is going to be a problem. So let's just, so just because I have it right in front of me. So Tax Policy Center, when they did their, their, their estimates of the tax law, including the macroeconomic effects. So when they then they factored in the growth of the economy, the projected impact on debt um, is going to be in 2027, $1.5 trillion or 5.5% of GDP. Uh, and that's going to go up to $1.6 trillion or almost 4% of GDP in 2037. So it's, you know, it's 5% of GDP, which is a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Yeah. And it, and it constrains our, uh, it constrains the government's ability to respond to um, economic crises, um, military crises, um, other financial crises. It, it, it constrains our ability. And I think our, I think the sort of implicit view from the government is that there's this tap of, of um, people who are willing to fund the United States that will never get shut off. And I'm not sure I buy into that. Um, I think in general that, you know, I think, I think debts, debt can be used, deficits can be used to 
finance government activities when they need to be financed, but especially in times of economic growth, um, we should be working on the long-term fiscal health of, of the country, and we're really not doing that. Now, that being said, obviously, the, the counter position is, well, if the tax cut is going to spur so much economic growth, we will grow our way out of that. Now, I'm not a macroeconomist enough to know whether what level of growth we need to achieve to get out of this amount of debt. But it seems like it's a lot. Um, and it just, uh, having spent a lot of time studying Social Security and the pressures that are facing Social Security, um, which is a entitlement program to which people are guaranteed um, their benefits um, to, to, some, to, to some extent. Um, the pressures that are going to weigh on the federal government's uh, financial picture are, I think, concerning. And as you mentioned, you know, as you mentioned just a few years ago, uh, the GOP was was really concerned about jet about debt. Um, now, with this tax law, uh, doesn't seem to be so much. But again, their perspective seems to be at least that you know we'll grow our way out of it. And I'm just not convinced that that's that that's the case. Mm. It's, it's well. It's always so much more fun to like you know talk about academia than talk or or, or like you know the industry yeah. as a whole than it yeah. is to like talk about <laughs> the myriad problems that it's our job yeah. to deal with. Right. Well, maybe um, what we'll have to do then, Eric, is just have John back for sure on Social Security. We haven't done that yet. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, um, you know, it's an interesting. The, the, the actually part of Social Security that I find really interesting, and the one that I do a lot of work on, is the disability side of it, um, because that's the one actually that is. The trust fund of the DI program is going to go broke in 2022, I believe. So that comes first. Um, and it will be interesting to see how Congress deals with with that looming shortfall. So um, I think we have learned a lot about the, you know, one, just the, the sheer complexity of the the bill we're talking about, even though we didn't get into the, like the many specific details, which I actually really enjoyed because you can just read those. You can be like, oh, it did this and it did this and it did right, this. Right. But like, what does that mean? What are the implications going to be for individuals, for the nation as a whole, for the economy, for our debt? This is a pretty complex piece of work. And, you know, one of, one of the things that we're not going to leave you with is whether we think it's a good thing or a bad thing, because that's not our job. That's yours, dear listener. Um, but one of the, you know, John, you've put more thought into this tax bill than we have because we flit around from topic to topic like butterflies. And one of um, what, what I want to do is is make sure that I give you the opportunity to say, "Hey, in my study of of this and in my work at the, you know with the context of my work at the CBO and such, this is something I learned about it that I think is really important and informative and and underappreciated. What do you got for us? Yeah, I guess there's a few things. So so let me just like quickly go back to the three big things I want to make sure that people understand about the tax bill. So the first thing is that it's a, that there's the corporate side and the income tax side. There's a big change on the corporate tax side. And I think that's something that uh, probably for a lot of us didn't really uh, hit home because it's not something we have to deal with in our, in our weekly paycheck. But that's a, that's a big thing. The, second, the other thing we talked about was big tax cuts when the economy is doing relatively well, that not only um, that, that, you might want to do tax cuts when the economy is uh, not doing so well, so you spur the economy. And by doing tax cuts when the economy is doing well, um, maybe we're constraining ourselves for future for future action. And the third thing we just talked about was was the big debt. So um, that's going on in the future. So I think 
you know, I guess for me, I would come back to the debt. Like, I just think it's, it's a huge thing. It's, you know, it's going to expand to, you know, nearly $2 trillion um, later in this decade. Um, and I think that's the thing that we need to be, that we need to think about carefully is whether we want to be, ha- we want to, we want to have a government that's running huge debts and deficits um, without thinking about the long-term ramifications for the country, the long-term ramifications for uh, our elderly, for our needy, for our kids um, going forward, and w- how those large debts are going to constrain the government's ability to respond to crises and other needs um, in the economy and around the world. All right, Democrats listening to the show, now that the Republicans <laughs> love debt, you're allowed to hate it now. That's, debt, that's be right. a debt hot school again. Make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I did, I did come off a little bit that way, didn't I? But I didn't mean to. No, I just want to be, you know. I just, I just, I just want to be think. I like I said about the, like I just want to be thinking carefully about these things. Like it seems like you had mentioned earlier that the tax bill was kind of rammed through. Oh, and yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's, that's true, right? That's objectively true that <laughs> they held maybe one hearing, right? And that's just not enough. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I. We didn't have as a as a nation. We didn't have, I think, enough time to discuss the ramifications. Here, I'll give you a personal example. Right, the tax bill was passed on like December twenty sixth or seventh or whatever it was. I mean, when they did that, right, there was a scramble for every for people to prepay their mortgage, um, their property taxes, right. And so, so right. they they ran this thing through, and it gave however many homeowners are out there, basically five days to figure out how, how and whether to prepay their property taxes so that they could you know, take advantage, which is not a bad thing to take advantage of, of the tax code. It's, what, it's why we claim deductions and why we you know, make char- part of the reason why we make charitable deductions. Um, you know, we take advantage of the, of the aspects of the code and it wasn't really done in a way that allowed American citizens to fully understand it and to fully um, incorporated into their daily budgets and their daily lives. So, you know, what I think I just want to, I just want time to think harder about this stuff. And, and I just feel like, um, things move, things are moving so fast that we're just not hitting that pause button a little bit. Well, I think we might have to hit a pause button until our next conversation. Um, but John, it was really a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for coming on the show and just, digging deep into some of this stuff. It was really a pleasure to be able to chat with someone with your experience at TBC and CBO. So hope you'll join us again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks guys for having me on. It's been uh, been a lot of fun. Remember, all you listeners out there, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. We'll see you next time. So long, everyone. Thanks again, John. That was, that was, that was a lot cool. of fun, man. I... Yeah, I get to the end of these podcasts occasionally because it's certainly not always. I just like want to keep talking because it's just like, oh man, you guys want to grab a beer? Like, let's go get a beer and talk about like tax policy. (laughs) (laughs) Just, just let's just just let it fly, man. (laughs) Just go all. But actually, (laughs) just go all night. Come to Boston. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.